Hey everyone. How you holding up out there? Well, you probably thought you were getting a regular program of dark, softly tales. And so did I. But I realized that what I had to say was way longer than I could ever fit into a story intro. So I did put out our very last mermaid-themed story, a little flash that I wrote called Heart for a Heart. And this is a bonus episode of True Tales to Tell in the Dark. I feel that applies to our times now more than ever. You are forewarned that tonight's program has a deeply spiritual twist. So if that triggers you or if it's not your cup of tea, feel free to skip this episode and go straight to the story, which is episode 33. Our topic for tonight is this. What does it mean to have a soul? I want to start off first exploring true tales through the life of Hans Christian Andersen, then dive into the story of the Little Mermaid, and then we'll go into the soul, quote unquote, of the story. Okay, so Hans Christian Andersen, as you all know, wrote several of our favorite fairy tales that are just as beloved and famous as the Grimm Brothers tales. There's a reason these stories have stuck around when others have fallen into the dark, voidless pit of forgotten art. Voidless. I think I just made up a word. But moving on. I asked myself why. Why is it that these stories are just as alive today as they were a century ago? So I began researching Hans Christian Andersen. Of course, I went the easy route first, looking up what people wrote about him. Pretty boring stuff. I wasn't impressed. They're all like, he was born in 1805, the son of a shoemaker. And it's like everybody says that. They really want you to know that he was a son of a shoemaker. Okay, I know that. But what inspired all these fantastic tales? Um, So finally, I decided to search the biographies that he wrote about his life and I'm so glad I did. I was worried that the books would be stuffed full of words and phrases that I didn't know, like trying to read an old Shakespeare play. Though often once I pick up the rhythm of the words and I can figure out the pattern of the way that they speak, I can read along and understand what they're saying. And I recently did this with Goethe's biography, spelled G-O-E-T-H-E. It sounds like Goethe, like G-E-R-T-A. It's, it's kind of weird. It's the German last name. But anyway, I found some translated books from the early 1900s or late 1800s. And this dude has like six volumes of his biography, which completely blows my mind. Can you imagine having six volumes of work? And these books are pretty thick and the words are so tiny. I have a hard time reading them even with my glasses. 
I have a giant magnifying glass and I'm thinking like next time I try to sit down and read the book, I'll have to do it with a giant magnifying glass just so. It's like, I don't know, I hate it when they make the words so small. It's like they don't want you to read it, you know? Um, anyway, why am I even talking about him? Oh yeah, and the reason I'm talking about him is because it is difficult to understand, even with the translated language, and to put myself in the time and the place and what exactly is going on, the description of the houses and exactly what was hanging on that wall, I'll never know. But in contrast, reading Hans Christian Andersen's biography, I could completely understand, and it was so entertaining. He is this natural, flamboyant storyteller, and just as his fictional worlds are filled with joy and sorrow, so is his biography. Um, the book is filled with so many interesting stories, and I thought I would share a couple of them with you here tonight before we get to The Little Mermaid, which is a fictional tale. So, true story. When he was younger, his grandmother on his mother's side worked in a garden at a mental asylum. He talks about the beautiful flowers that always filled the vases in their house and how the brightness of their color absolutely delighted him. He often went with his grandmother to these gardens and played amongst the roses and the flowers and he enjoyed following the mentally disabled folks around and just loved listening to them talk and ramble on. He found it so interesting and it really set his imagination on fire. Occasionally, he was allowed to go with the attendants into the buildings where, quote unquote, the raving mad, as he called them, were. And one day, when the attendants were elsewhere, he found himself down this long, long hall. There were doors down this hall, and he peeked through a crack in one of the doors, and he saw this naked woman with long hair lying on a straw bed, singing to herself. So he was watching her through this little crack in the door, if you can imagine a little kid doing. And suddenly she leapt from her bed, smacked against the door, and the little valve that they put the food through was swinging open and closed, open and closed. And as he lay flat on the floor in terror, he saw a single eye staring out at him through this swinging flap. And then she reached her long bony hand through it, her fingertips scratching the top of his clothes. Anderson says he was frozen to the spot and couldn't move. And it screamed. He was just frozen in terror. Thankfully, uh, an attendant saw him on the floor. He saw that what was happening, was able to rush over and get Anderson away. But Anderson said that that memory put this pinprick of ice into his heart. And any time that memory would come up, he would just feel this iciness. I thought that was really interesting, and I think that translates to a lot of his stories, especially the darker ones. Speaking of which, Anderson was uh, rather eccentric with his fears. It was said that he was quite afraid of being buried alive, and that when he traveled, he would always set a note beside his bed that read, I only appear to be dead. So funny, but I suppose that that would be a genuine fear back then. It is also said that he always had a rope in his bag. So if he was staying in the upper level of a house, 
or an inn, he would always be able to get out a window, you know, like tie the rope to something and get out the window in case of a fire. He was also afraid of dogs, which is interesting because he often has dogs in his stories, such as the Tinderbox. If you haven't read the Tinderbox, you should definitely read it. It has big scary dogs. And he wouldn't eat pork because he was afraid of contracting an illness from parasites. And given what we know today, that's a very valid fear. A few more stories. Han's father sounds like a thoughtful and eccentric man. He enjoyed reading and would spend a great deal of time thinking about what he read. A quote from his father that I loved is, There is no other devil than that which we have in our own hearts. This declaration rather startled Hans's very Catholic mother, but I think it was quite wise, and we can see this type of thinking in Anderson's later works. It was said that the winter before an illness that took his father's life, that he stood looking out a frozen window pane. Hans' father pointed out a figure of a woman with outstretched arms and said, the ice maiden has come to fetch me. The following winter when he died, Hans's mother recalled this memory and said, the ice maiden has fetched him. And they both thought about this during those dark mournful hours after his father's death. Later, Anderson would write a tale called The Ice Maiden. After working in a factory to help support the family for a few years, he left home at the age of 14 and from there went on many adventures, trying to make it in the theatrical arts. His experiences are filled with ups and downs, joy and sorrow, and ever-present was his naivety and utter trust in the universe to take him where he wanted to go and ultimately where he needed to go. Um, he found his fame not in singing or dancing or acting, but as we've all come to know and love, it was his stories. Hans traveled around the world, staying with kings and queens, princesses and princes, telling his tales. Eventually, one of these kings and queens, who loved him so dearly for his stories, offered him a very comfortable amount of money to be paid to him for the rest of his life. What is interesting is that though he was the son of a shoemaker and raised in a very poor conditions, he always thought that rubbing elbows with the elite would be the height of joy for him. But it never was. He was quite lonely and found himself often melancholy. I think it's because of what we talked about in a bit. What he was looking to obtain wasn't made of money or fine clothes, good food or homes. He ultimately came to the conclusion that if you put your trust in the universe and follow where your path and heart lead, it may not always take you where you expected to go, but it will give you exactly what you need. As far as love, he loved many people in many different ways, but in his biography, one particular person stood out to me. He was very, very close to a young woman named Jenny Lynn, whom he encouraged despite her shy nature to sing. He encouraged her and finally she was brave and was able to come to a very first concert outside of Sweden and Denmark. He talks about 
On the night of her first concert, her voice was so bewitching that everyone in the room forgot they were in a concert hall. It was a truly magical experience. That night in Denmark, in that concert hall, was the very first standing serenade. Torches were lit in her honor. They made such a big deal about her that she ended up coming back on stage and singing more songs for them. Sounds like just a truly magical night. Long story short, this little shy girl from Sweden became one of the most famous and loved opera singers of all time. And man, I would give anything to go back in time and to listen to her voice. The way Han Christian Andersen describes her is like anyone else in the book. He was obviously heads over heels for her, just absolutely enchanted. Unfortunately, although she loved him, it was more as a brother and not a lover. It must have made him so heartsick. If you ask me, I personally think that she was who he was thinking of when he wrote The Little Mermaid. Only he would be in the role of the mermaid, and Jenny would be the role of the prince. Because he was the one who more or less discovered Jenny, or one could say rescued her from a sea of humility. And though she loved him dearly, she chose a different man, much the way that the prince chose a different woman in the story. I can't help but wonder of the magic that those two would have made as a pair. It would have been a truly happily ever after. But then again, we're speaking in terms of the soul tonight, not in terms of physical gratification. I'd really love to relate to you the story of when Hans first met Jacob Grimm. This story is hilarious and one of the most humiliating moments of Hans's life. And there is another one about when he stayed with Charles Dickens. But if we are ever to get to the discussion of Little Mermaid and the Soul, we probably should do that now. But I encourage you to pick up the book yourself. It's called The True Story of My Life by Hans Christian Andersen. I picked up the Kindle version for free on Amazon. And I'll link to it in the show notes. So this leads us to the topic of the story The Little Mermaid. So in the Disney's version of The Little Mermaid, Ariel falls in love with the prince, wants to be with him at all costs, which for her is deserting her people, giving up her fins, and her voice. In the show, the sea witch casts a spell over the prince, causing him to fall in love with somebody else. And in the end, Ariel's daddy, the sea king, breaks the spell. The prince realizes who his true love is, and Ariel's voice is restored, and happily ever after, right? In Hans' story, though the Little Mermaid did love the prince, there is something else she longs for even more. She longs to be able to weep tears, to fully express her sorrow, to have an immortal soul. So let's talk about what it means to have a soul. I've been doing some heavy-duty research um, this week, but more like the whole month. And honestly, I could probably just do this for like a year or two, like every night, and just barely scratch the surface of what it really means and what it is and how it works. 
but obviously this is just a short episode, not not even very long, so I'll do the best that I can. Um, so the, some of the research was based on ancient philosophies regarding the soul. Um, when reading these ancient texts, which is often mystical in nature, philosophers often talk about the body, spirit, and the soul. And to define these, I am going to quote R.J. Campbell from The New Theology. And this is what he says, quote, The body is the thought form through which the individuality finds expression on our present limited plane. The soul is man's consciousness of himself as apart from all the rest of existence, and even from God. The spirit is a true being thus limited and expressed. It is the deathless divine within us. The soul, therefore, is what we make it. The spirit we can neither make nor mar, for it is at once our being and God's. So I thought that this was a pretty good general distinction between the three. Focusing on the soul, it is separate from all else. And specifically, it's about what we bring to the table. The Latin word for soul means anima. Think of the word animate. And also butterfly. The Indo-European word is sai, which I probably said that wrong. It's spelled S-A-I, which translates into the word suffering or sorrow. So if we go back to the story of the Little Mermaid, one of the reasons she desires a soul is because she wishes to be able to express suffering or sorrow through tears. And as a side note, many have noted throughout history that to be human is to, be, is to suffer, to have this suffering-like experience, which is a very real, very large part of the human experience. So though we have always thought of The Little Mermaid as a shallow Disney story to win the heart of a prince, it's a very deep-rooted or very ancient theme that gets to the heart of suffering or of a soul. The journey the mermaid chooses is much like a baby being birthed into the world. She is a princess of the sea king. Every whim and want is met. She is very, very comfortable in the world of the sea and very naive. She gives up her world for land, gives up her fins for legs. She gives up the comfortable, lonely existence of the sea for sunrises and sunsets and seasons. If you think of a baby floating in utero, it has all its needs met. And one day, it's pushed out of its warm, nurturing world where it's suddenly cold. There's bright lights. It can move its arms and legs freely. There's nothing keeping it bound. And even its vocal expression changes. There is suddenly so much pain on the inside as well as the outside. This is the case with the Little Mermaid. She allows the sea witch to cut out her tongue and she gives up her voice, which is also her power. She, every step she takes on land is like stepping on sharp knives. And if the prince marries another woman, on the morning after the wedding, the mermaid will turn into sea foam, simply cease to exist. 
In the story, though she wins the heart of the prince, it is very much a sibling-type relationship. I see the prince as rather shallow character. He is so focused on finding the girl who rescued him from the sea and is convinced it's this girl studying at the temple. But since she is at the temple, the prince assumes that the girl cannot marry and, and promises the little mermaid that he will marry her. It's nothing for her to worry about. The little mermaid has no voice or power to tell the prince that it was she who had rescued him from the sea, who had put him safely on the shore. And in the end, the prince discovers that there is indeed a girl studying at the temple, but it was for the purpose of becoming a wife. And they marry. So not only has the mermaid given up her home, her world, her race, her fins, and her voice, not only does she endure physical pain with every step, she experiences the ultimate betrayal. When the prince returns from his trip abroad, proclaiming a betrothal to someone else. I think that we can see through both of their actions that the prince was focused on principles on what mattered on the physical plane. His life rescued a well-studied woman, whereas the mermaid was focused on what mattered to the heart, or rather, shall we say, the soul. In ancient texts, it says that the soul must be awakened or animated. And once it's animated, what is the duty of a soul? To rise. Our bodies stay here on earth, but our souls are meant to rise. The mermaid began lower than a human. She rose to the human experience by risking everything that she had. In this human experience, she is also well on her way to gaining what is deemed in her eyes what is the most precious of all, a soul. But the true attainment of a soul comes at a very steep price, an eternal night, as she puts it, or what we in modern times think of, dark night of the soul. It is the choices that we make during the dark night of the soul that determines what happens next. The night of the wedding, the little mermaid sisters rise with their hair shorn in exchange for a knife from the sea witch, of course. If the mermaid cuts out the prince's heart, she can return to her home, she can return to her sisters and the sea, and she'll never have to think of the suffering that she's been through ever again. Even more, she will not turn into the sea foam when the sun rises over the sea. In the mermaid's eternal night, she has a very difficult decision to make. She goes to the prince and his new wife early, early the next morning before the sun rises, and she sees them lying in bed together, and she drops the knife. She can't harm him or his bride, not when she loves him so much. Her experience of betrayal and suffering could have transformed her into something quite dark and nasty, but instead, she rises. She chooses love and to give herself up. She walks out into the sunrise and her physical body does disappear, but she doesn't go down 
into the waves. She rises up to the daughters of the air. She weeps real, true tears of one who has suffered sorrow. She is told that if she follows specific instructions, which are rooted in basically selflessness, which was the ultimate act that she just followed through on, by the way, she will indeed have that immortal soul which she so desperately desired. In the end, the Little Mermaid obtained that precious jewel she so desired. But just like in real life, it wasn't by the path she was told to follow or the way she had wanted it, but it was exactly what it needed to be. I realize that this talk of soul may turn some of you off, but we are not talking about religion here. We are talking about what animates you into being you and what it truly means to live, to go through that dark night of the soul and rise up from it. In this world right now, we are surrounded by chaos, and division. It's dark out there right now, and it's hard to make out what the truth is. We are amidst the dark night of a soul, and each and every one of us has choices to make. We are on this path that society has told us to be on. We don't have to stay on that path, though. We can follow our inner guidance, which is our true path. A baby coming out of the womb can probably feel like the outside feels chaotic and it isn't warm and snuggly like it is on the inside. But the baby adjusts, he grows, he learns to walk. And so though it may seem chaotic at first, all is exactly as it should be. However, it all hangs on the choices that we make next. When different situations present themselves. Right now, we are learning how to navigate this new phase we find ourselves in amidst pandemics, rioting, anarchy, and who knows what else is on the way. But if you hold on to that inner truth inside of you, you're going to walk. You're going to learn what nourishes you. You'll learn how to phase out all this noise and chaos and focus on the one the things that you need to listen to. In this, we can make the right choices. We can rise. We can rise together. But the truth is that as humans with souls, we are going to experience suffering and sorrow just in different ways. And if in what seems like the eternal night, we can rise above and beyond all that chaos and the lies, if we can love each other as individual souls that are both the same and different at the same time, if we can be selfless and give, even when the world can only see what it's, what's in it for them, then we can see that even though the world is telling us everything is crazy, we can be strong in ourselves and strong for others. We can rise. And that, my friends, great and small, every single color, gender, race that exists in our universe, that is what I wanted to explore and share with you this evening. 
as I mentioned in the beginning, I decided to do a flash separately this week. So look for that in the second episode um, I'll put, I'm putting out, which is number 33. It's just a couple minutes long, but I think you'll really enjoy it. And it wraps up the mermaid theme fairly well. So we'll see you over there. Until then, stay safe, stay true, rise like butterflies, and shine bright, dark heart.